Okay, I'm gonna jump right in because we're starting a bit late. So yeah, I'm talking. Thank you, Sergio, for having me. Um, uh, yeah, so talking about discrimination and psychological harm. So I want to start with uh, what I have here on the slide. It's just some empirical reality, real facts and empirical reality. Um, the, uh, what I have here to start is a, is a quote from legal scholar Marie Matsuda. It's a sort of off-cited uh, quote. So Masuda is writing in the 1980s on uh, looking at legal limits on free speech in the United States, in particular, uh, in order to prevent certain types of harm caused by things like racial slurs or hateful expression. Uh, and Matsuda says, uh, and again, in this uh, widely cited quote, victims of discrimination experience psychological symptoms and emotional distress ranging from fear in the gut, rapid pulse rate and difficulty in breathing, nightmares, post-traumatic stress disorder, hypertension, psychosis, and suicide. And again, Masuda's writing in the 80s, the research on the psychological effects of being victimized by discrimination uh, has progressed since then. Uh, and just to give one example, uh, Professor Robert Carter, psychologist at Columbia, uh, has recently done a uh, literature review and has identified a diagnostic condition uh, called race-based, what he calls race-based trauma which is an emotional injury motivated by hate or fear of a person or a group of people as a result of their race. And some of these early works were focused in particular on racial discrimination. There are, uh, particularly against black people, but there have been more recent studies demonstrating similar sorts of harms uh, caused by discrimination against indigenous persons and also members of the LGBTQ community. And so again, we have real uh, psychological diagnostic uh, conditions, hypervigilance, anxiety, stress, depression, distrust, fear, hopefulness, and dread. And um, a lot of the sort of condition of race-based trauma is likened to post-traumatic stress disorder. So um, I'm a philosopher and a lawyer and a psychologist, but I think like a lot of these empirical realities um, tell us something that we probably would have intuitively thought uh, beforehand. So kind of confirming the sense that discrimination is harmful in, uh, in, the, in a sort of special sense by interfering with a person's psychological integrity. And I don't know the sort of, I can't you know, speculate as to the psychological mechanisms by which that's true, but again, it, it seems kind of intuitive that if a person is attacked because of their membership in a group, if a person's uh, group is uh, publicly stated to have lower status than other groups that should not have equal status in society, someone might feel that effect uh, as having a a negative impact on their sense of self-worth or self-respect. That seems quite intuitively true. Um, and what, what, I've, what I have in here is a kind of pretty standard ethical <laughs> conception of harm, uh, an interference with a person at a person's ability to flourish and attain one's conception of the good uh, or to live an autonomous self-authoring life. It's a pretty broad conception of harm. Um, the thought is that we're harmed when our means to achieve our conception of the good are damaged or set back in some, in some way. And our means include our physical body, we're harmed when our physical body is interfered with, we're harmed when our property is interfered with, we use our property to achieve our conception of the good. And of course, we use our mental integrity and our sense of self-worth, our sense that our projects that we aim to pursue are valuable in order to uh, have the motivation to pursue our conception of the good. So it seems, all of this seems quite clear that there's a, a viable conception of psychological harm that we should pay attention to and that it can be caused by discrimination. And yet, um, looking through the ethics literature or the philosophical literature on harm, I think the place of psychological harm um, in, in particular thinking about harm-based views about what makes discrimination wrong is um, under-theorized. And to give one example, of, there's a particularly influential book 
by uh, Professor Deborah Hellman at Virginia, When is Discrimination Wrong? Um, and she develops an account called the demeaning expressivist account. She says discrimination is wrong when it expresses a demeaning message about the victim or the victim's group. But she is quite clear to say that when I talk about demeaning this, I don't mean psychological harm uh, on the victim of discrimination. I mean something more objective, like behavior that's inconsistent with someone's moral status. So there's all there's all explicit um, uh, reluctance to focus on psychological harm. So what I want to say today that, is that uh, the notion deserves more attention. Uh, it's gonna, I think it has useful theoretical uh, purposes. Uh, in particular, it offers a, a potential solution to a conceptual problem with harm-based accounts of the wrongness of discrimination. This problem I try to outline in a recent paper in Law and Philosophy. Um, and what I'm gonna suggest is that if we think more clearly about the role of psychological harm, we might be, be able to see a way towards fixing this problem. So in a way, I'm trying to clean up my own mess that I created in, in this paper. Um, um, so what I'm gonna do to start is talk about what this problem is uh, and then uh, introduce harm-based accounts and explain how I think the idea of psychological harm can address this problem. Um, and then after that, sort of move into the legal world. So again, philosopher and a lawyer. And I want to suggest that um, if we think more deeply about the impact, the psychological impact of discrimination, we can also uh, see a way to developing anti-discrimination law in ways that have been underappreciated by Canadian courts. So uh, this work, this part of the talk comes out of a co-authored paper with Mark Friedman uh, under review, Legal Limits on Discriminatory Expression in Canada. And that part's going to proceed um, by critiquing uh, a recent decision from the Supreme Court of Canada uh, for failing to recognize this category of psychological harm. So we're going to do the, the theoretical part and then move to the practical part. Um, so just really quickly, and we'll talk a bit more shortly to break down this the definition of discrimination, but to have uh, a rough sense on the table, what I'm talking about when I talk about discrimination is uh, discrimination occurring in familiar contexts like employment, not hiring somebody or firing somebody, uh, or housing, evicting somebody or not renting to them uh, because of certain specified traits that the employee or the tenant has, right? The traits that we're familiar with, sex, race, disability, religion, uh, uh, that are usually protected uh, as prohibited grounds of discrimination under the law. Um, and I don't, we can talk a bit more about this, but I, we can cash out the notion of because in different ways. There are senses of direct or intentional discrimination or indirect or unintentional discrimination. I don't think that um, that distinction matters for much of what I'm gonna say. So we can just focus on intentional discrimination, say firing somebody for the motivating reason that they're uh, uh, say uh, a black or, or a woman. So um, in the literature, there are two kind of dominant accounts of what makes discrimination or these kinds of actions more than wrong. Um, there are what I call here monist harm-based views, which say that harm is the only wrong-making feature of discrimination when it's wrong. And there are pluralist views, which say that there are wrong-making features in addition to harm, something other than harm. Uh, for example, disrespect for a person's moral status. And the way that I think that you know most people accept that there are harms of discrimination and those harms can be can make discrimination wrong. The pluralist views are motivated by cases of harmless discrimination. Uh, and these are uh, attempts to show that there are cases of discrimination that are not harmful. We can kind of bracket harm out of the picture, yet they seem to be um, intuitively morally wrong. And so our intuition that they're morally wrong has to be explained by something other, other than harm. Um, so there's a variety of these types of cases in the literature. I have this case here, Smith and Jones, just to sort of focus uh, our attention. I call it Smith and Jones in the law and philosophy paper. 
but it's modeled on similar accounts or examples that are given in the literature. It's simply this. Imagine Smith, who's an employer, um, receives a job application from Jones, and Jones is a black person, and Smith has uh, racial animus towards black people, tears up the application, and Jones doesn't get the job. But then the thought is Jones goes on to get another job that pays him even better than he would have received, and he would not have received that job had he actually gotten uh, hired by, by Smith in the first place. So it's supposed to be a very simple example trying to show that fortuitously, for some reason, uh, Smith or Jones ends up being uh, benefited overall, uh, not, the, not harmed, it seems like, as a result of this discriminatory act. Yet we think it's morally wrong what Smith does, so something other than harm must explain uh, what, what's wrong here, such as uh, uh, Smith manifesting an attitude of disrespect for Black people. So I think that uh, the reason why these cases crop up, these harmless discrimination cases crop up, is because um, the, the sort of most uh, uh, prominent harm-based account of what makes discrimination wrong relies on this particular conception of harm, which is simply this, contributing to patterns of inequality that are harmful for the worst off. So in the language of political philosophy, it's kind of like a prioritarian account. Harms are worse when they're visited on members that are already worst off in society. And that's the type of harm that discrimination causes. But really, um, in ordinary language, what makes discrimination bad uh, against Black people, for instance, is that it contributes to the social inequality. It makes some contribution to pre-existing and historical social inequality faced by Black people. And those patterns of inequality are uh, harmful for, 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 for marginalized groups. And that contribution is morally wrong. Um, but what you can do, and you know, whether you agree with that Smith and Jones is a genuine case of harmless discrimination, the contribution that someone makes to social patterns are causally complex, right? If, when somebody refuses to hire somebody because of their race, whether or not, or their sex, whether or not they contribute to broad patterns of social inequality, um, in, in a, to identify that causal link, it's not easy. And so you can think of cases where we sever that link, and so there's no causal contribution, yet we think that there's some moral wrong that's going on, and it has to be something other than harm. Um, so, like there's not a lot, a ton of written on this problem, but I think that there's a potential response that sort of half-heartedly maybe has been given, and that kind of invokes a pluralism about harm, right? So I said that there are monist uh, harm-based views, and then there are pluralist views that say something other than harm makes something wrong. But if you want to defend a purely harm-based view, you can say there's different kinds of harm. Right? You could say harm is the uh, the genus. I don't recognize any other genus, but there are multiple species of harm that can make discrimination more or wrong. And if you go in for it, it seems like a plausible idea that we can be pluralist about harm. If you go in for this view, um, you can uh, you can say you can say well, there's some other form of harm that we didn't notice that makes harmless discrimination cases Smith and Jones uh, morally wrong. So uh, this is sort of language that I'm using here. Uh, we can distinguish between proximate and distal harms, or local and downstream harms. So if we accept that in a case like Smith and Jones. There's no downstream or distal harm because there's no sort of contribution to social inequality going on, and so there's no harm there. We might still say there's approximate harm. There's, there's a local harm happening in the act of tearing up the application and, and uh, Jones not getting the job, or there's approximate harm. He doesn't get the job, right? That's a disadvantage. That's a harm. Um, that's approximate harm that can make the act wrong. So others call this a local harm view about what makes uh, this. So, so it's trying to rescue this harm based view from cases of uh, harmless discrimination. Um, so I think that the, the proximate harm view uh, encounters a serious problem. 
And to see what the problem is, we'll think a bit more about what it is to define an act as discriminatory. Okay. So uh, this is a pretty standard way of defining discriminatory. Notice that it's, how do we define an act as discriminatory against a person? Okay. Um, it has three components. The act has to disadvantage the person um, because the person has some traits. Okay. And again, we can cash out because in a few ways, intentional or unintentional. Um, uh, but the key idea is that the first component, component one, is disadvantaging because that's what distinguishes discrimination against somebody from what we understand as discrimination in favor of somebody. Because discrimination in favor of somebody benefits them because they're a member of a certain group or they have a particular uh, trait. So discrimination against involves this notion of disadvantage. Right? So now Smith's act is why is it discriminatory against Jones? Why is it properly classified as such? It's because it disadvantages Jones. Uh, and the motivating, Smith's motivating reason was Jones's race. And the disadvantage was that Jones doesn't get the opportunity that he applied for. He doesn't get the job. That's why the act is discriminatory. But then notice that if we accept the proximate harm view, the same thing that makes uh, Smith's act qualify as discriminatory against Jones, the disadvantage component, the not getting the job, is also the same thing that makes the act morally wrong, right? The not getting the job on the proximate harm view. Um, in which case, the proximate harm view portrays Smith's act as morally wrong by definition, just by satisfying the definition of discrimination. It's, uh, for that reason, morally wrong. Um, but I don't think that we, when we talk, so, so this is a, maybe a controversial point, but when we classify something as discrimination, um, just in using our ordinary language, I don't think we thereby necessarily are morally condemning it just by saying something's discriminatory. So it seems, it doesn't seem like I'm, you know, talking nonsense. It seems like I'm acting intelligibly when I say, you know, that was discriminatory against uh, smokers or against Scorpios, but it wasn't morally wrong. It doesn't seem like I'm confused about the way that I'm using words. Our definition of discrimination doesn't seem like it's moralized. It seems like it's morally neutral in that sense. So I think that this implication uh, that the proximate harm view has is uh, counterintuitive. Um, but I recognize, and I think a lot of writers recognize too, that uh, yeah, some people do have this intuition that um, labeling something as discriminatory just is meaning to say that it's morally wrong. So they you know, say that maybe our, our, our concept of discrimination is moralized. It's like murder, right? So if we say, you know, you murdered that person, but it wasn't morally wrong, it does seem kind of weird to say that you should say something like you killed that person, but it wasn't morally wrong. Killing seems to be a morally neutral term. Murdering seems to be morally loaded. Some people think discrimination is like murder in that sense. Um, and I, I just, you know, I guess we could talk about this a bit more, but I, I don't think that um, that's a plausible view. And really what I'm worried about is about uh, affirmative action. So um, affirmative action involves discrimination in favor of somebody. Right? So affirmative action involves benefiting somebody because they are, are a member of a disadvantaged group. And uh, in the course of of performing affirmative action, sometimes uh, you can have discrimination against members of privileged groups, um, but that's not even necessarily pro tanto wrong. In fact, there's a whole debate about whether the that discrimination involved against members of privileged groups uh, uh, is pro tanto wrong, and whether affirmative action requires a special justification. Right? So the U.S. Supreme Court recently is very clear uh, that it does require special justification, but there's there's a big debate about it. Um, we shouldn't be able to just settle this debate, it doesn't seem, by defining the discrimination against privileged groups as morally wrong. Right? It seems like you have to argue to the conclusion 
that discrimination against privileged people uh, involved in affirmative action is morally wrong. Not that you can define it as wrong just by calling it discrimination. Okay? So I don't think that we should accept a moralized view. And so the, the problem remains that uh, um, this proximate harm view has this counterintuitive implication. So what's the possible solution? So what I think we should do, and so this was the kind of argument in the paper and sort of leaving it as to say, uh, I'm not sure what the reply is, and here's a possible reply. Um, I think we should leverage pluralism about harm, and what I started out with as the empirical reality of the psychological harm caused by discrimination. So to use the sort of language of distal and proximate harms again, um, we can say something like this. Smith's act does not cause distal harm of contributing to structural injustice. We can kind of grant that. That's what the case is about. Um, it does cause proximate harm or disadvantage by denying Jones' job. And that's what makes the act satisfy the definition of discrimination, the first component of disadvantage component. Uh, but we don't have to go further. We can say that's not, that just, just not getting the job is not what makes the act morally wrong. And this sort of seems kind of right. It, it's not the case that just not getting a job can be morally wrong, or else there would, every employer would have a duty to hire everybody. Sometimes there are reasons, uh, legitimate reasons, for not uh, for not hiring somebody, of course. Um, but the thing is, we can recognize we can be pluralists about proximate harms if we're harm, we have a harm-based view. Uh, we could say that it's proximate psychological harm on uh, on Jones. That's the wrong-making feature of Smith's discriminatory act, or these purported acts of harmless discrimination. So to sort of schematize what I have in mind here, in a case like Smith and Jones, you can ask three, three questions. What type of harm is being inflicted, um, uh, if at all? And uh, is that what I call a definitional harm? Is it the sort of harm that just makes the act satisfy the definition of discrimination? Uh, is it a wrong-making feature of uh, wrong-making harm of the act? So the, the Smith and Jones cases are designed to screen out distal harms. So there's no uh, distal harm, there's, there's no contribution to patterns of inequality. Um, obviously, it can't be a definitional or a wrong-making harm. Um, we can say that there are multiple types of proximate harm. Uh, we can say that there's a denial of an opportunity, job opportunity, uh, and that's definitional. That's a definitional disadvantage that makes the act discriminatory, but that's not the wrong-making feature. Um, uh, but we can recognize that there's a psychological harm involved too. Uh, that's not a definitional harm. And we'll get to that why it's not, but it's a wrong-making feature of the harm when it obtains. Okay, so now we've kind of separated out the definitional wrong-making features to try and avoid this wrong by definition problem. Um, so I've talked a bit about the difference between what I think is definitional and wrong-making harm. And notice that uh, when we talk about whether an act is discriminatory, I don't think it makes sense to talk about it as like more or less discriminatory. It sort of either is or is not discriminatory, it either satisfies the definition of discrimination or it's not. And once we determine, so, so that corresponds with the idea that the denial of, an, of an, a job opportunity in the Smith and Jones case, um, uh, it, it just either either Smith does or either Jones does or does not get the job. Either that opportunity uh, uh, evades him or else he gets it. In which case, it either is discriminatory against him or it's not. Sort of on off in that sense. But the wrongness of just once we say that an act is discriminatory. We can recognize that just like the wrongness of discrimination comes in different degrees, different magnitudes. And I think where we can track the magnitude of the wrongness of discrimination by looking at what degree of psychological harm the discrimination was, uh, the, what, what it inflicted on its victim. So that's how we can sort of uh, recognize that 
uh, you know, there's no different levels of discriminatoriness, but there is different levels of wrongness. Okay, there, now again, so this is sort of uh, conjectural, this is the sort of idea that I'm putting forward. There are some lingering questions, and maybe I don't know the entire answer to all of them, but I'll just put them out there. And the, the first thing is like, what if John Jones just never knows that the, what, what the reason was why his application was torn up? And what if, in many cases, like the litigation gets started because mostly because there's a reasonable suspicion uh, on, on the part of the victim to sue the employer that their race was a factor, for instance, in not getting, a, in not getting the job. But when we're talking about the ethics, the moral wrongness of discrimination, is it, is, it, is it the case that Jones needs to know about the wrong? Because presumably, if he doesn't know, then how could he suffer psychological harm as a result? Or if he has no suspicion, if he just thinks that, well, okay, I wasn't, I didn't have the qualifications or something like that. Um, so I can imagine, uh, you know, uh, proponents of pluralism or opponents of the harm-based views trying to run further harmless discrimination scenarios and saying, well. Imagine uh, Smith's act is totally clandestine and nobody else finds out about it. Like, can that is that can that can we generate more harmless discrimination cases? So maybe, um, or do we have to say something like, what makes Jones's act, or Smith's act wrong is that it exposes Jones to a risk of psychological harm. If Jones finds out about it, uh, it has the potential to counterfactually cause Jones harm if Jones knows about it. I'm not 100 sure. I guess we can say with some reasonable confidence that when it is inflicted in the actual world, setting aside these counterfactual worlds, you know, and in many cases, again, this is how litigation gets started. Victims suspect that they were discriminated against and they try to claim, we'll get to this, but they try to claim damages for, for mental in injury. Um, so at least we can say that when it's inflicted in the actual world, it seems like psychological harm can be a long-making feature. And then I guess we have to sort of leave these lingering questions. Um, standing, and there, there are a couple of more questions that will start to take us now into the legal side of the paper. So we need, to, we need to distinguish between what legal theorists call harm and offense. Okay? Both of them involve some kind of psychological effect on a victim. Um, harm, as we saw, is an interference with human flourishing, one's ability to achieve one's conception of the good. Uh, it, I think that plausibly includes an interference with one's psychological integrity. Race-based trauma seems like a paradigmatic example of the harm, a psychological harm inflicted by discrimination. Um, offense is something else, though. Offense is, and this is coming from Joel Feinberg's uh, account of offense. Um, it's an inherently aversive, uh, unwelcome, unpleasant psychological experience that someone has. And it can be immediate or immediate. So an immediate type of offense is when someone's offended, say, by a sight, sound, or smell that they're just confronted with, uh, um, and then they just sort of take offense to it immediately. A mediated offense is when somebody becomes offended because somebody uh, else has done something kind of socially unacceptable. They've acted contrary to established social norms. So a good example of uh, an immediate offense is when a person shows up to a, uh, a funeral wearing like brightly colored clothing. There might be nothing offensive about the actual sight of that color, but there's a convention that to show respect for the, the dead and the family, you wear dark clothing to a funeral, and that's why it's offensive. Okay, but we need to distinguish between harm and offense here. Uh, why? Because uh, although many people accept the harm principle, the view that uh, the, the prevention of harm provides a reason to limit liberty, to use the law to limit someone's liberty, not everybody accepts the offense principle, which is that uh, 
um, that an action is offensive provides a reason to uh, to legally regulate it. Actually, Feinberg, who uh, one of the you know, most famous modern defenders of the harm principle, rejects the principle of legal moralism, which says that an act being morally wrong in itself uh, provides a reason to legally prohibit it. But he accepts something something like the, the offense principle as well. Um, so he thinks that certain offenses like uh, public drunkenness or making loud noises, public nuisance, or public nudity, these sorts of things, these are offensive. They're criminalized because they're offensive, even if they're harmless and even if they're not morally wrong in themselves. But I think most criminal law theorists don't agree with Feinberg and they say that the harm principle is all they endorse. They don't go so far to accept the offense principle. So a lot's at stake in being able to say when the harm caused by this, well, the, the psychological impacts of discrimination count as harm and when they count as offense or when it comes to legal regulation. But I want to say that, so as I alluded to earlier, I want to say that despite these outstanding questions, uh, the kind of uh, proximate harm, psychological harm account that I've sketched does a reasonably good job of capturing actual anti-discrimination practice. Um, so um, if, if you, uh, again, if you suspect that you're discriminated against, what you do is you go to the Human Rights Tribunal um, and you say, okay, I lost my job or I, I wasn't, uh, um, I wasn't treated well in some way by my landlord or by this restaurant or something like that. You first say, uh, that happened to me and it was because uh, I have some one of the grounds protected under the codes, human rights codes. Uh, it was because of my sex, it was because of my age, it was because of my religion or something like that. And then if the tribunal says it's correct, then they can already monetary compensation. In section 45.2, one sub one, it's a mouthful of the uh, Ontario Human Rights Code says that the tribunal can order, this is the standard monetary remedy for discrimination. It's compensation for injury to dignity, feelings, and self-respect. Okay, And so like, it's been standard practice in Ontario and under anti-discrimination law for the tribunal for decades to be able to try and quantify the amount of psychological injury that someone has suffered as a result of being denied a job, for instance, because of their, uh, because of their sex, for instance. Um, and they've also apparently been able to do a good job of distinguishing whatever harm is being claimed from non-compensable mere offense that doesn't rise to the level of compensable harm. So I think that somehow the law seems to address these lingering problems. Um, and I guess I, I want to say that it's a, it's, a, it's a mark in favor of the theory that it's consistent with, uh, with, with our actual practice. Um, but now we're sort of full, full blown into the law world. So I've tried to show thus up to now, I've tried to uh, say that the notion of psychological harm has useful theoretical work in solving some conceptual puzzles and so on. Now I want to say that it's also useful for critiquing and developing the law. And what I, want, I mentioned I would focus on a recent Supreme Court of Canada case. The case I want to focus on is a case called Ward uh, in Quebec from 2020, November 2021. Uh, so quite recent. Um, the case involved a comedian, a professional comedian in Quebec, whose comedy was in this style of what he called dark humor directed at sacred cows or untouchables in Quebec. And, and these were people in Quebec who, because of their, uh, their public celebrity status or because they, uh, they were perceived as, uh, as vulnerable, they were seen as immune. They sh shouldn't be making fun of these people, but that was his style of comedy. Um, there was a person named Jeremy Gabriel who was a young, he was, he was a, a young person at the time of these events. Um, and he had, uh, he, he was a singer in Quebec who was pretty uh, famous uh, as well. He had Treacher Collins syndrome, which is a, a congenital uh, condition 
that gave him malformations on his head and made him deaf, and he wore a bone anchored hearing aid for it. And uh, he uh, became a very uh, uh, accomplished singer and rose to public prominence uh, uh, in having this disability. So Ward uh, made jokes in a public show uh, when he was doing his comedy, comedy routine about Gabriel. And among the things he said, these were the comments that sort of became the, the, um, the, the focus of the litigation. But he said he was an ugly singing kid and because of the hearing aid said that he had a subwoofer, looked like he had a subwoofer on his head. And there were also, I think it's important to note too, that there are also kind of a lot more dark things that were said like about disabled people generally, uh, about like uh, eugenics, that sort of thing that uh, actually didn't become the focus of the litigation, but there were all, um, I think it's important to be aware of the wide range of things that, that Ward said when thinking about this case. So Gabriel, uh, through um, a litigation guardian, because he was young, sues Ward for disability discrimination. Uh, and I don't want to get into all the technical details of how the Quebec uh, uh, Charter of Human Rights and Freedoms works, but he sued for uh, disability discrimination, obviously not in employment. That wasn't the disadvantage he suffered because this was happening in a public show. So he had to rely on something other than employment or housing. And he said, well, it deprives me of dignity. And there's a specific provision in the Quebec uh, Charter that provides everybody has the safeguard of dignity. So he said, I was uh, discriminated against because of my disability and I lost my dignity because of that. And ready at the, or at the forefront of the case, right, is the conflict between Ward's, this comedian's freedom of expression and his goal of protecting people, in particular disabled people from discrimination, this public goal that the, uh, the Quebec Charter's anti-discrimination provisions set out. So uh, how do we balance between these uh, two goals? And one thing I want to mention too, I'm happy to talk about this if it comes up, but uh, one of the big questions was like, was the comedy that Ward uh, was telling, is it artistic expression? And does the fact that it's artistic expression give it extra weight when balancing between freedom of expression and, uh, and discrimination uh, and anti-discrimination? And so I think that's a really big topic and a very interesting and important topic that I are beyond the scope of what I want to talk about. What I really want to talk about is just the, so, so I'm not going to say at the end of the day whether the Supreme Court was right or wrong on the facts of Ward, because doing that requires you to sort of say something about artistic expression, which I'm, I'm reluctant to do. Um, what I do want to talk about is the sort of general legal framework that the Supreme Court endorsed for balancing between freedom of expression in the abstract and the goals of equality, egalitarian goals of anti-discrimination law. So the Supreme Court looked at its prior uh, cases on hate speech and said that, well, we know that forms of discriminatory expression are justifiably limited uh, to prevent the specific unique harms of hate speech. So what are those harms? Um, that requires us to understand what hate speech is. Um, and a line of cases from the Supreme Court that says that hate speech is aimed at convincing third parties to accept the lower social status of members of the targeted group. So the, the words that get thrown around when talking about hate speech are vilifying, ostracizing, delegitimizing another group, right? Putting out messages that have a tendency to do that and kind of to galvanize or encourage other people to harm the victim. Are the members of the target group. Okay. I hope that's relatively clear. I think it's useful. So the Supreme Court, I think, has read Jeremy Waldron on, uh, on harm of hate speech. It just sort of has his view. So Waldron uh, uses a lot of these sort of environmental metaphors to understand the harm of hate speech. So um, hate speech causes a kind of atmospheric harm. It pollutes the social climate and makes the climate less secure for members of the, 
a victim's group uh, uh, and makes them makes them more vulnerable to attacks by third parties. Um, and uh, following Ray Langton's useful term recruitment, because she says that what hate speech is, is attempting to recruit others to mistreat members of the target group. So I'm going to call it just to get a compendious term for all of this. Hate speech causes recruitment harm. Okay? Let's call it that. So that's the sort of Supreme Court's view. And this is what this is the conclusion that the court came up to. Ward's jokes did not cause this type of recruitment harm, this harm of hate speech. Um, although admittedly, they may have caused emotional harm to Gabriel, psychological harm to Gabriel. Um, so they had to, you know, given the importance of protecting freedom of expression in a free and democratic society like Canada, the only way that they could be legally prohibited is if they caused this harm of hate speech, this recruitment harm. So the court says the perception of a reasonable person targeted by those words must be excluded. That approach results in a shift towards protecting a right to not be offended, which has no place in a democratic society. The applicable test must not be focused either on the repugnant or offensive nature of the expression or on the emotional harm caused to the person. Okay. Um, so what I think, I think it's, it's very clear that it's justified to limit freedom of expression in order to prevent recruitment harm and that hate speech laws do that. Um, I agree with the Supreme Court on that. Um, but I think the Supreme Court has kind of elided the distinction, kind of ran together the notion of emotional harm, psychological harm, and offense. And it didn't see that there could potentially be a category of harm that doesn't rise to the level of hate speech harm, recruitment harm, but that rises above offense uh, and whose prevention can justify limiting freedom of expression. Okay. So again, what I have in mind, the little schematic. Um, when we talk about discriminatory expression, like these jokes or racial slurs or hate speech, um, or anything that falls into that category, we can ask the question of what are its effects? And does preventing those effects justify limiting the value or undermining the value of freedom of expression? Um, and so one of the effects could be recruitment harm, the harm of hate speech, and we know, and nobody disagrees, that preventing that type of harm can justify limiting freedom of expression. So we think about the Keegstra, uh, you know, famous cases from Canada, that's what they involve. Um, I think we all can agree too, and I, I guess I don't disagree, don't take a position on it, but I don't disagree that um, the prevention of offense uh, can't itself justify uh, limiting freedom of expression. That's what the Supreme Court saw, uh, Ward's expression falling under. <laughs> what I'm suggesting is that the court didn't see this middle category. It blended these two categories and didn't have like a subtle enough legal framework to see the difference. I think there can be such a thing as individual psychological harm caused by discriminatory expression, and I think in some cases it can justify limiting freedom of expression. That's the extent of the critique of the case that I want to go to. And notice here, so it's kind of like the earlier uh, framework that I talked about in the moral philosophy this part of the, of the discussion, um, because you can imagine the harms of hate speech are kind of diffuse. Like when when I when somebody uh, uh, tries to vilify or delegitimate delegitimize another group, um, the sort of causal contribution that that makes to structures of social inequality, I think are, are intuitive, but they're hard to trace. It's like a diffuse contribution, it's hard to see. It's more of a distal harm. It's like the sorts of harm I was talking about at the beginning about contributing to structural inequality. But what I'm suggesting is that there can be approximate harm of discriminatory expression and the prevention of that harm. Approximate harm that's distinct from mere offense um, that can justify limiting expression. So my argument is not that, it's just that Canadian law already does this in a variety of realms, and that the Supreme Court didn't sort of see 
that it would be consistent with the way in which it does this in other realms for it to do so under the Quebec Charter too. Um, uh, so here are all the ways that prohibiting discriminatory expression is used to prevent psychological harm. Um, one of them, a couple of them are under the human rights codes themselves in Canada already. Um, so first, sexual or racial harassment. Um, that can occur in a variety of ways. One way in which it's defined is a course of vexatious comment, right? Just pure speech or words. Um, and there are lots of cases where sexual harassment occurs in workplaces uh, uh, against women, and women are able to sue for that I mentioned earlier, those types of psychological harms under the code that are made available to them. Um, so that's a form, so harassment is a form of discriminatory expression that can cause psychological harm. That's not just offense, uh, and uh, it's justifiably prohibited under the codes, it seems like. Um, of course, it's been argued that deliberate misgendering, which is just a form of expression, can constitute gender identity discrimination in itself, and that can be compensable under the codes, the Ontario Human Rights Commission and the BC Human Rights Commission both take, both take the view that it is. Um, uh, there's also this thing, publication of discriminatory signs or symbols. So for example, this is like uh, an employer putting up a swastika in the workplace. That's a discriminatory sign or symbol. That's prohibited under the human rights codes. But most human rights codes, actually Ontario doesn't do this, but most human rights codes do distinguish between prohibitions of hate speech and prohibitions of discriminatory publications. They have two separate like, offenses under the human rights codes. Um, the BC Human Rights Tribunal says that this type of provision prohibits harm that goes beyond being merely offensive, expression that is harmful beyond being merely offensive. This is, I guess, a direct quote, but that does not meet the threshold for hate, like the separate hate speech prohibition, right? So it's literally recognizing this middle category that I think the Supreme Court didn't. Um, I want to talk a bit about some criminal offenses. Uh, there's all kinds of offenses that prohibit pure expression. Um, uh, defamatory libel, which is similar to defamation, which we'll talk to in a bit. Public mischief, criminal harassment, which is similar to harassment prohibited in the human rights codes. Uh, uh, obscenity, prohibitions of obscenity. Um, but I think it's worth focusing on the uttering threats offense. Okay, so. Um, uttering threats uh, clearly limits freedom of so the, the crime of the, the ability to be punished and go to prison for uttering threats clearly limits freedom of expression, right? Um, and it's possible to threaten somebody in a non-discriminatory way. I'm going to punch you in the nose is just a non-discriminatory threat. But there's all kinds of, dis of discriminatory threats. Uh, there's a case out of Nova Scotia involving uh, a woman who was prosecuted for um, uttering threats when she there was a, a, a black parishioner came to her small town and started uh, speaking to the congregation. And she went up to him and said, like, if you don't stop what you're doing, I'm going to get my friends are in the KKK and they're going to come beat you up. Right? And she was prosecuted. That's clearly a case of, I think, just discriminatory expression. And I think that when a person is prosecuted for like the harm caused by this sort of racialized threat, um, I think can be a type of recruitment harm. Right? It can be like the harm of hate speech. It can contribute to social patterns of inequality that make Black people more insecure in society, for example. But also, I think that we criminalize this sort of uh, these sort of threats to protect the psychological integrity of the individual victims, the black parishioner in that case. So they both, I think, the, the protection against both of these types of harms is occurring. Um, threats of sexual assault too. Uh, so the Supreme Court of Canada has dealt with a few cases where you know you had a man who was mailing threatening letters to women that he worked with outside of. Uh, work hours and saying like I'm gonna I'm gonna assault you 
Um, so they were committing threats of sexual assault. And uh, again, that kind of it's discriminatory expression on the basis of race, but that kind of expression can clearly contribute to you know, structures of patriarchy in society uh, on, on a broader level. But I think, and the Supreme Court recognized this, the reason for these being criminalized is to protect the psychological integrity of these victims of uh, threats of sexual assault. Again, beyond mere offense, right? Actual psychological harm. So I promised I'd talk about defamation. So this is another sort of area, another domain of law, of court law, uh, that I think we can see this middle category the Supreme Court didn't. So defamation, um, you can sue for defamation when a person has lowered your reputation, right? And the Supreme Court of Canada has said that the common law cause of action for defamation clearly limits free expression. Right? When you publish comments that lower someone's reputation, you're, uh, you're sued for that. Your expression is being silenced. Um, but the importance of protecting people's good reputations justifies limiting that expression. And uh, why, why is that the case? Because one's reputation is very closely connected to one's sense of self-worth uh, and, uh, uh, and one's personal sense of dignity. Um, so if defamation is meant to protect against, if, if the tort of defamation is meant to protect against psychological harm, we should also see that it's possible to commit defamation using discriminatory expression. Discriminatory defamation is a thing. Um, and a recent case in, in Ontario involved, uh, there's, a, there's a chain of successful Middle Eastern restaurants called Paramount in, in, uh, in Toronto. And the owner of Paramount is a, is a Muslim man. And there was a radio jockey that went on, on air and said like this owner of the restaurant is a terrorist and is going to uh, uh, commit war crimes in Canada and sort of take over the country, that sort of thing. Uh, and the, the, uh, the Muslim uh, store owner successfully sued for defamation. I was able to say that this person lowered my reputation using my uh, religion and race as a means say, to attack it. Uh, and so the law prohibits that sort of thing, again, between offense and not rising to the level. Psychological harm, not rising to the level of hate speech harm. Um, there's another cause of action, kind of lesser known, called intentional infliction of mental distress. The Ontario Court of Appeal a couple of years ago said that there's no specific tort of sexual harassment. You can't sue for sexual harassment. You can sue for intentional infliction of mental distress in order to uh, prevent somebody from uh, causing you mental distress through sexual harassment. And so there was already an existing rule that prohibits sexual harassment at common law. And um, in the same sort of pattern, there are also cases involving like the police arresting an indigenous person and using racial slurs in the context of a wrongful arrest and the person being able to sue for intentional infliction of mental distress uh, uh, as a result. So there's all uh, so the same pattern, right? Now all these cases are meant to protect proximate prevent proximate psychological harm. Um, and I think that to right, right two o'clock, so I'm gonna start, I'm gonna end up now. So um, the, the account that I'm providing, I think is consistent with uh, the recent sort of loosening of strictures that the Supreme Court has uh, uh, developed for claiming damages for negligent injury to mental health. Okay, so if someone drives negligently and injures you, you can sue them for the physical damage you sustain, but you can also sue them for mental injury if it causes you, if your injuries also cause uh, mental health conditions, you can sue for that. And it used to be that um, the law was kind of suspicious of these claims for mental health damages. The law said, oh, they're easily, it's easy to fake pain and suffering. It's easy to exaggerate pain and suffering. Um, and recently the Supreme Court has said that this kind of uh, encodes a kind of stigmatization of mental health in the law. And it sort of treats mental injury as less serious or less important than physical injury. 
So they lower this. The standard used to be you had to show uh, that you sustained a recognized psychiatric illness, right? That you have a, a, an actual condition that satisfied diagnostic criteria, and you can't just go and testify like I, you know, I've suffered anxiety and depression as a result of this car accident. You had to get a psychology psychology expert in to testify. Um, but this high bar was lowered basically to recognize that um, it's not the case that uh, that um, uh, mental health damages are somehow lesser than physical damages and that they're inherent, they're not inherently suspicious. Okay? Um, so I think the account I'm giving is consistent with that as well. So I'll wrap up now. The reality that discrimination causes psychological harm, I think it warrants closer attention both in the ethics and juridical uh, um, disciplines. Uh, I said it can play a useful role in harm-based views of what makes discrimination morally wrong uh, by solving this conceptual puzzle that I think exists. And I can help us better understand and maybe develop anti-discrimination law in new directions. And I still think though, that I'll just end by saying, I still think there's a difficult question of distinguishing between harm and offense. And the Supreme Court recognized that when it was um, like loosening the strictures for, uh, for claiming mental health damages. Um, it said that, so the court said, you have to um, show that you sustain actual psychological injury and not mere psychological upset. So I think it was still recognizing like a lower threshold thing like offense. Um, and I don't think it's fully resolved that question. I don't think that Bragg said resolves it either, but I think um, uh, I'll just end.